We are uh, going to finish up Elijah tonight. Uh, We have been uh, walking through a series of studies uh, called Elijah, God's troublemaker for troubled times. We've been doing just this short uh, character study on the person. And this is the the final teaching on the lifetimes and ministry of Elijah the prophet. And I I hope that you've enjoyed this series. I've certainly enjoyed teaching it. It's been very uh, stimulating and, and, and challenging to me. But uh, tonight, uh, it's a little little different because we're not just talking about Elijah. Tonight, I want to I wanna deal with the call of Elisha, who was Elijah's successor, and the departure of Elijah. Uh, in, in order to do so, let's, let's prepare by turning to the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. If you want to turn there, we're going to be, begin reading in verse 15. 1 Kings 19, 15 says this. The Lord said to him, go return on the road through the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael to be king over Aram. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, to be prophet in your place. He who escapes the sword of Hazael will be killed by Jehu, Jehu, and he who escapes the sword of Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Still I have preserved 7,000 men in Israel for myself, all of whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So he, meaning Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by and threw his cloak on him. He, that that is Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my, my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to Elisha, Go back for, uh, for what have I done to, to you? So, so he, Elisha, turned, returned and followed Elijah and took a yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes from the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he, Elisha, got up and went after Elijah and ministered to him. Now, let me just say before we get into this tonight that I, I'm going to be making reference to several passages of, passages of Scripture from this point forward in the story all the way uh, into the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings. However, uh, I'm not going to read every one of those just for the sake of time this evening. So I encourage you to go home when you get some time, read it on your own, but don't not tonight. I want you to listen to me tonight. Uh, but uh, I encourage you to look those up and read through those. I believe that one of the easiest things for an adventuresome spirit to hear from God is when God says, come now, I have a new thing for you. But I also believe that perhaps among the most difficult things, if not the most difficult things for an adventuresome spirit to hear from God is, it's time for that to end. That that thing that I've called you to, it's over, and I'm going to raise up someone else to take your place. You know, I, I wonder as we read these words that are so coolly placed in black and white before us. I wonder if we can understand what it must feel like uh, what, and what it must have felt like for Elijah for, to hear God say, go to Abel-Meholah, which in Hebrew means the valley of dancing. Go to Abel, Abel-Meholah and anoint another man to take your place. Now, now I say that because, I mean, does, does that make anybody you know, a little squeamish to hear that. It would me because, I mean, am I the only one that would say, uh, God, uh, does that mean that I'm like uh, going to die? 
Is that what this means here? Why are you calling somebody new? Uh, does this mean that, that something is going to happen? It's going to cause you to lay me aside? Why should I anoint another to take my place? Let me, let me serve out my course and then you find someone to anoint and bring him forth the way you did me. Why should I choose my own successor? Now, on the other hand, there is in that a, a, a tremendous affirmation of Elijah, isn't there? I mean, first of all, that God would trust him to hear a word like that. That he would trust, that God would trust Elijah to say, you're going to anoint your successor. You know, that God would say to him, I'm going to bring your ministry to a conclusion. And and this is the man that's going to take your place. And I want you to anoint him as, as your successor. God must really trust a guy to tell him something like that. Second, God must have, have a great deal of confidence in And blessing upon the ministry of Elijah, so much so that he wants the ministry to continue in the same spirit and style and method of operation of Elijah after Elijah's death. So it's a great affirmation. All things come to an end. Everything comes to an end. And God says to Elijah, you're going to come to an end. You're nearing the the last chapter. But this great ministry that I've put into your hands, that... I want to continue to go forward. Now, the call of Elisha, his successor, is unique. It's unique enough that we, we, to where we should spend a little time looking at the, this passage of Scripture. Uh, the, this, this valley, the valley of, of, of the dance, as, as, as Abel Mahola is called in Hebrew, it's a, it's a place of joyful, tranquil, idyllic, you know, agricultural blessing. And the winter is over, the early spring plowing has begun, there's, there's a great deal of festivity, it's, it's a family village, it's well known as a happy place. In, in fact, you, you need to remember that things and people and places in Israel are often named appropriately, they're, they're not like Americans, uh, we, we don't name carefully, we don't name things carefully, we name things because we like the sound of the name, Right? But, but the names of things and people and places in Israel were names that meant things. So, so this was a place that was known, the valley of dancing, the valley of joy, the, the valley of happiness. And Elijah comes to this place at the direction of God, and, and God tells him to find a man about whom he knows nothing, Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Now, now, this man, Shaphat, is, a, is the predominant uh, landowner, the agricultural overlord, if you, overlord, if you will, of, of Abel Mahola. And, and it says that Elijah finds Elisha. Now, we don't know how. We don't know if he's identified by some divine revelation or whether Elijah goes around and asks people to point out who Elisha was. But in some way or another, he identifies Elisha among all the young men that are involved in the agricultural work amidst all the laughter and the celebration that's going on. See, we're, we're really out of touch with these agricultural settings. We, we don't we don't live like this anymore, very often anyway. And, and even if you live in an agricultural setting, it's different uh, in, in that it's more uh, corporate. It's, it's less family-oriented. You don't have as many people involved. You know, we live in apartments and high-rises and houses with tall fences. And we don't know the people who live behind us or, or on either side of us very often. And so, you know, we're, we're out of touch with the festivity and the, the joy of that kind of a setting. It was a celebrative uh, kind of atmosphere 
And it tells us that Elijah was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now, there, there are two ways of viewing the scene which is set here before our minds. And now, I'm not a farm boy, far from it. I grew up in the city, and I don't know anything about this. So hearing that, my way of thinking, I had in my mind that there was, that there was this one guy plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That's 24 oxen, as I understand it. And he's guiding this whole string of oxen, and, and he's just yoked up with the last one. And I thought, my goodness, what, a, what an odd contraption that must have been. However, the more I, I read about this, the more I studied, the more I realized that that, that that is almost without a doubt not what it meant. The, the plows which were used by the ancient Hebrew had such poor cutting edges and, and had such a shallow bite in that uh, hard-baked Middle Eastern soil that they, they plowed the same furrow over and over and over and over again. So it doesn't mean that Elisha alone was plowing with these 12 yoke of oxen. At least this is my understanding of the passage according to what I've read. It it means that there there were 12 men each plowing with a yoke of oxen and Elisha was was at the last one. And these men are probably all lined up in a row. Uh, The the best information I can find on it said that they they plowed in a row and that they they would plow not just once down a row because the plows were so inefficient, they would often go back and forth on the same row so that 12 12 plows would uh, would bite the the same furrow maybe three times. And so they would go up and then all of them would turn around and come back and then turn around and go back even sometimes a third time in order to to get the the furrow deep enough for the planting. Now, now the reason I make a point of that is that, first of all, the language is, is a bit obscure to our modern minds, and so I want us to get a good picture of the scene, of what's taking place here. But in the second place, I want to point it out because, because I want you to see that Elisha is so different from Elijah. Now, now this is a study on, about uh, uh, Elijah, not Elisha, but, but uh, Elisha in, the, in reality is as different from Elijah as night is from day. You know, Elisha is more lighthearted, whereas Elijah is more somber, more dark. You know, he's the, he's the, the dark prophet of, of fire and famine. And Elisha is the prophet of Abel Mahola, the valley of dancing. And you almost see that valley of dancing all throughout Elisha's life. So, so what I'm hearing when I see that, when I understand that, what I'm hearing in this passage is there are different types of ministry at different times according to the sovereign will of God. That not everybody's going to be the same. That not every person's going to act the same. Not everybody's going to have the same gifts. But, but, but God in his sovereign will will choose different types of people at different times to fulfill what the work that he wants to be fulfilled. So, so God says, when I need an Elijah, I'll raise up an Elijah. He, and he may have that, the, the ferocious roar and the anointing of God to be able to call down fire. Then may come an Elisha. You know, Elisha's first miracle was a miracle to help somebody. What was Elijah's first one? His first announcement announcement was the announcement of God's judgment on a king and a nation. Very different. Do you you see what I'm trying to say? So Elisha, he's he's found, therefore, in, in, in a line of oxen plowing in this happy little valley in the middle of the warm embrace of his family. Twelve guys cracking their whip over the, their oxen. 
joking with each other as, as guys at work will often do and laughing together and talking to the maidens that are doing their work over on the, on the sides of the field. And then all of a sudden, into this happy little scene comes the dark and foreboding prophet Elijah. Now, they all know him. They all know him. He, he's a monumentally important figure in his generation. So he walks up, and he, and he has a mantle. Now, mantle or, or the robe uh, in, in all of Asian culture is a symbol of authority and anointing. And, and we, we still use that idea somewhat, even in the West. You know, judges often, although not always, but they often wear robes which signify the mantle of, uh, mantle of authority that has been placed upon them. Sometimes in some churches, ministers wear robes that signify the anointing or the authority that has been placed on them. You know, magistrates in British culture, not always, but often they, they wear white wigs as a symbol of, of wisdom. And, you know, maybe we need some white wigs for some of our judges today. At least we'd have the symbol of wisdom. <laughs> I won't go there. But the, the idea of what's taking place here is obvious in what Elijah does. He just comes up behind Elisha as he's walking along with these 12 men. He's walking along behind his yoke of oxen and Elijah pulls off the robe off of his back and he says, and he places on Elisha's shoulders and he says, here, let me destroy your life. And so you see what I'm saying? See, we, we fancy this call to, to, to a prophetic ministry, and we, we romanticize it. But, you know, I think there are people who would say, uh, say, call me to be a prophet. Call me to be a prophet. However, I think it's, it, they say that because they haven't understood the life that Elijah had just had to live through, the things that he had to walk through to be a prophet of God. You know, El- Elijah understands that the mantle which he lays on in Elisha's shoulders is, is much heavier than Elisha realizes, much heavier than anyone realizes except for Elijah because his shoulders have worn it. He is, he, his shoulders have borne the, the weight of, of the fury of kings who wanted him killed. His, his shoulders have borne the weight of responsibility to speak the word of God to a nation. His shoulders have borne the weight of the responsibility to hear that word from God in the first place. His, his shoulders have borne rejection and, and scorn and derision and mockery and loneliness and isolation. And so now he, he sees this happy, laughing teenage boy plowing his father's field. And I can't help but think, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think he approaches Elisha with some heaviness. And he says, son, wear this. And he drapes the mantle over the boy's shoulders and walks away. And isn't that a dramatic scene? And as I prepared for this, I I tried to first put myself into Elijah's place and and then into Elisha's place. This all so far has been all about what Elijah feels. But as, as Elijah walks away from Elisha in that moment, I want you to picture everything that's going on because everything just stops. They're out there plowing the field, or they're, they're enjoying the, the, the festivities of the spring planting, and, and all of a sudden, here's Elijah. Here's the, here's the prophet. Here's the man of God, and he shows up, and he walks up behind Elisha, this, this guy that they've grown up with, 
And he places his man on his shoulders. Everybody knows what it means. I can't help but think in that moment, everything stops. The, the, every maiden singing along the signs of the field, they just stop their singing. Everybody freezes, and that old bowed prophet starts to lead the field. And the boy puts his hands on the mantle, and I, I wonder what went through his mind. I wonder if he didn't say to himself, I, I'm not sure I want this. I'm not sure I want to live like this. I'm not sure I want to go through the things that he's gone through. However, Elisha, or yeah, Elisha responds in spontaneous faith. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't, he doesn't bicker. He doesn't resist. All he does is he asks for permission to go tell his parents goodbye. You know, and some people try to make a a big deal about a possible correlation between this event and a similar event in Jesus' ministry. But we, I think we need to remember and understand that the man who came to Jesus and said, let me go say goodbye to my parents, he was not really just trying to go say goodbye to his parents. He was trying to dodge the call. He was trying to get out of, away from the call of God. Elisha was simply saying, do I have your permission to go kiss my parents, tell them goodbye, and then I'll come. In other words, you know what, what that's, what's happening here? Elisha is saying, I see this as a summons to an entire life of prophetic ministry. He's just going to go with Elijah, you know, for, forever. I mean, if this was nothing more than just a weekend trip, then he doesn't have to go through this big deal with his parents. He doesn't have to say goodbye. He's saying, right now in this statement, he's saying, I'm saying goodbye to everything. This happy little valley that, that I've known uh, all my life is this, this, this beautiful, idyllic place where I've stacked the wheat, where I've romped with my friends, where I've sung the, the songs of, of harvest celebration, where I've held my father's hand as, as a little boy as we walked across this very field. I'm leaving all of that to go uh, to, to, to give my life to the prophetic ministry and, and, and knowing that that may even that may even cause my own martyrdom he says just let me go tell my parents goodbye the remarkable thing to me is not just that he said yes but that he said yes so quickly I, I mean I, I've thought about this and and, and I've asked, you know, why would he do that? Why would he say yes so quickly? Well, we don't know. We don't really know. We're not told. So my guess is as good as or as bad as anybody else's. Uh, and I'm not telling you that this is clear in Scripture. However, could it be, and, and it's, it seems reasonable to me, and, and it's consistent with the, the rest of the counsel of Scripture, but could it be that God had already been dealing with Elisha about this before Elijah got there? We see it all through Scripture where God, and we see it even today in our own lives that, you know, uh, when we talk about prophetic ministry, when, when somebody comes to you and say, I've got a word from, uh, from God for you, uh, listen, God speaks to you, and so if it's an absolute shock, it may not be from God because he talks to you first. And then he uses the other gift as, a, as something to affirm what he's already saying to you. So could it be, could it be that, that when the weight of, the, of that mantle hit the shoulders of Elisha that he said, I knew this was coming. I knew, I, I was fooling myself behind these oxen and singing these happy songs, but I, I knew this was coming. Let, let me go tell my parents goodbye. Now, now here's an interesting little footnote here. You notice that it says 
that he, he slew a yoke of oxen. He, he killed the oxen, some oxen. You catch that? And he, and he cooked them and served them to the people. In a sense, you could say he makes a goodbye feast, if you will. And, you know, maybe you could look at it as sort of a sacrifice or just some great act of generosity. However, it occurs to me that when he was killing the oxen, I noticed that, did you notice that he was killing the oxen with which he was plowing? He was killing his own oxen, the one he was plowing. He's saying by doing that, he's saying, I'm not going to need these anymore. I don't need these anymore. Do you understand what I mean? It's, it's like the kid who's going off to spend his life as a missionary in some far off, off land or something, and he says, well, I'm going to give my car to my brother because I won't need it anymore. I'm not ever going to come back. I'm giving my life to that field. That's, that's the gesture that I see here. It's Elisha saying, I have no other option but to follow God. I'm leaving everything behind. I'm going to kill these oxen because there's no point in time I'm going to come back and become a farmer in this valley again. Having said all that, this wonderful, amazing, mysterious call of God of, uh, for Elisha into this prophetic ministry, having said all that, what can we say about the immediate burst of Elisha onto the scene of prophetic ministry? the answer is absolutely nothing. Nothing, because from that moment on, Elisha is not even mentioned again through two wars, through the death of King Ahab, through the succession of of King Ahaziah, through his death, and then the ascension of the third King Jehoram. Through all of that, he is not mentioned not even once. Now, that's a great lesson for us, because he was with Elijah that whole time. But you don't hear about him or what he's doing. You know, I wish every Christian teenager could hear this. At least let me tell you and you can pass it on to them. But, but, but these young people, when they feel the call of God or they catch a vision from the moment of the call, from the moment of the vision, from, uh, when that comes, uh, that from that moment until the moment w- that God brings it to pass, there may, there may be a great deal of time. It may take time to get to that place. You know, you meet a teenager and and they say, God has called me to be an evangelist. And you say, oh, that's just wonderful. And, and, you know, I say, oh, that's so exciting. That's great. What are you going to do now? And he says, well, I'm going to hold a crusade in the Los Angeles Coliseum. And I say, no, 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 no. Try Bible school. You know, try try being a youth pastor at some 60-member church in the middle of nowhere. You know, earn your spurs, learn some things along the way, get prepared, learn what you need to learn so that God can take you where he wants to take you. You, you know, but, but sometimes, especially when you're young, you want to jump from the moment of vision to the, to the moment of the fulfillment of the vision. But many times there's a long process of God teaching and training and shaping and molding us. You know, Elisha, he learned to be Elijah's successor by following after him, by ministering to him through two wars and the succession of three kings, learning, practicing loyalty, and waiting on the timing of God. And then comes the moment. Turn, turn if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read something here that, you know, listen, there, there are statements in the Bible that are absolutely profound, but they read as if they're ordinary moments. 
Watch for those kind of statements when you read the Bible that are, that are just flat. You know, they just kind of just clunk out there on the table, but they are just huge. They're huge. You know, they read like somebody might say, well, tomorrow they're going to burn down the White House. And, oh, oh by the way, it's going to rain Wednesday. You're like, wait, 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 let's go back to the first thing you said. Because you just, you know, just rolls past it so quickly and it seems like it's nothing, you know. Watch for statements like that in the Bible because they're always just, always just pregnant with some huge proclamation of some great plan of God. It, it just, to me, it just shows that God is extremely matter-of-fact about the furthering of his purpose and his will in human history, you know. God doesn't have to have some big fanfare. He doesn't have to shoot off fireworks. He just says, oh, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to sweep, the entire Babylonian, sweep away the entire Babylonian empire. Just, just like that. Just matter of fact. But I want you to hear this. Listen to what he said, what it says. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Then when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, it's like, wait, 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 wait. How many of you have ever known somebody who was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind? Anybody here? I haven't known anybody like that. I mean, this, this sounds like, well, at the end of the life of a prophet, you get to go to heaven in a whirlwind. It just sounds like, it's just so matter of fact, sounds very flat. When the, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in, by, by a whirlwind, it's, it sounds like as if this happens every day, you know? And, and in the ne- next few passages, we're we're going to get a kind of a glimpse into the prophetic community in Israel at the time of 2 Kings. There, there, there's this whole sort of subculture of prophets in Israel at this time who were just sort of all in the flow of the Spirit. They were all kind of getting this message from God. And, you know, one day they, they one way, one, excuse me, one way that they validated a message from God was that they would wait until they were confident about what they were hearing from God. And then they would just sort of bounce it off the other, the community of the prophets, these other people that are hearing from God. And, and, and if it echoed among themselves and, and they had some, some confirmation there, then they would say, we believe God's speaking in the community. So, Imagine now that, that over the course of months or, or perhaps years while Elisha is walking with Elijah, that, that it begins in, in one little prophetic enclave or another, you know, some these little charismatic Bible schools scattered throughout the hills, and in one little prophetic enclave or another, somebody says, you know, I, I, just, I just had the craziest thought. And he said, this is crazy, but let me tell you the, the thought that I had. I just, keep, I just keep feeling like God's going to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. And somebody says, you know, that really witnesses with me. I've been getting the same thing from God. And, and so then somebody visits from community A to community B, B and they say, you know what we're all thinking about over there in, in that community, in our community? And they say, wait, don't tell us. You're talking about Elijah going, being taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Whoa, did you get that too? The, 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 you get that feel in these next few verses. Listen and see if you don't kind of sense the, the same thing. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Then when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah went to Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Terry, here, I ask you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said to him, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Now, why is, why, is, why is he so desperate? I'm not letting you out of my sight. We'll find out in a little bit. So they went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, this little prophetic community that was down there, they came out to Elisha. Now, not to Elijah, but to his, to, to his assistant. They come out to Elisha and they said to him, catch this, 
Do you know that today the Lord is taking away your master from you? Did you ever see that before? They knew. The, the, it, the, it, was, it was like it was God had been talking about it. And, and he, Elisha, said, yes, I know. Keep silent. He says, hold your peace. Don't talk about this. Let God do what he's going to do. Do you see the prophetic sense, the, the mystery element in all of this? See, there is a time then to delay and wait on God and learn loyalty and to, 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 seek, to seek God's timing. But there is another time when you, you're supposed to just put up your sails. You know, there, there's another time when you have to be sensitive to the guidance and direction of God and you just have to go for it. You, you have to say, this is it. I, 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 don't know, I don't know how to learn that in my own life, much less, as, uh, heaven, heaven, knows, heaven knows, I don't know how to teach it to you. But, you know, I seeing, see young men that, that want to go into ministry and I, I wish I had some way to tell them how to sense that moment when, when the bud is so full that it's going to pop and you just have to be there with your hands open or you're going to miss it. But on the other hand, there are other times when you, if, if you hit that bud with a brick, you can't make it open. All you're going to do is ruin it. And there are times when you just have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And you're trying, to, trying to explain that. You know, you know what I thought about how to explain that? Um, let me, I don't really know how to teach it other than the experience of walking through some of those things. But, but let me try it this way. If, 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 if your wife has ever had a baby or ever will have a baby, you'll learn this. Or if you're a woman that has ever had a baby, you, you'll learn this. You know, because, well, that, that ninth month, that ninth month lasts about six years. Am I right? Is that about right? So, you know, I heard one woman say that she was pregnant with her, with her third child for, for nine years. That's what she said. But, uh, you, you know, you, you get to that moment where it's that ninth month, and you, you, just, you get out in the car and start riding over rough roads. You know, you start walking mile after mile after mile. You start, you'll drink anything that they say, this, can, this will start it off, because you want to jumpstart this whole thing. You get to that point where you say, this just can't go on anymore. Am I right, ladies? Okay, well, that's what I've noticed anyway. Um, listen, you, you, in that moment, you want that baby to come. And you want that baby to come right now. However, that baby is only going to come when it's good and ready. Is that right? There, there, and that's, that's the way it is with the timing of God. You're, you're not going to hurry the gestation period of that vision you you can rant and rave and kick the stairs and and God's still going to just take his own sweet time in fulfilling what he wants done in his timing however when your wife nudges you in the night and says start the car Jack then don't walk run when it's time it's time I, I tried to think of an example from my own life and the only thing I could think of that that uh would have any application here was I, I was thinking back to the very the time of the very beginning of my ministry I went to a church right out of Bible college and and uh, I, I won't go into any details but I got hurt in that situation and I decided that 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 if this is what ministry is all about I don't want any part of it and so I just walked away from it I just said I, I'm not going to do this anymore and and so I, I got a job at a printing company as a paper cutter 
Well, to make a long story short, which is really hard for a preacher because we like to make long stories longer and short stories as long as possible. But, uh, but to make a long story short, over the next several months, God began to do a healing work in my life. And, and that desire to fulfill his call in my life just really began to burn inside of me again. It was like Jeremiah where he said, it's like fire shut up, my, uh, shut up in my bones. I just knew I had to get back in ministry. And so I began to look for ministry opportunities, but there were no doors that were opening. And all the while, the Lord just simply seemed to be saying, wait and learn. I'm working at a printing company as a paper cutter. I don't want to be doing this. I want to be somewhere in ministry. And he's still saying, wait and learn, wait and learn, wait and learn. So I don't know how I heard about it, but I heard about, uh, the, I heard that the Assemblies of God uh, in Dodge City, Kansas was looking for a youth pastor. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever heard from God. I'm sure you have before, but I don't know how you hear from God, but but, uh, but in that moment, when I heard about that position, when I just first even heard about it, I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that God said to me, you're going to Dodge City. I just knew. Somebody say, was it an audible voice? No, it was much louder than that. It was something just reverberates through your spirit that it can't be, you can't be any more sure of it if it was an audible voice. And so I, I sent my resume, which is kind of funny because, you know, I'm, just months, you know, a uh, year and some odd months out of Bible college, so resume fits in about one paragraph, you know. So I sent my, my pitiful little resume to the church and waited, but I was confident. I was confident the church was going to call. They were going to hire me. I'd heard from God. I knew. I knew. Well, shortly after I sent that, I, I received a letter from the church, and I remember opening that letter. I thought, this is it. This is the official. They're going to they're gonna say, they're gonna say, hey, we, we need to talk with you. But I opened up that letter, and it wasn't what I expected at all. They, they thanked me for my resume, but they said they had decided to fill the position with someone from within the church. And I'm telling you, I was devastated. I, I, I wrestled with God all week long that. I argued with God. Anybody here ever argue with God? Anybody here ever win one of those arguments? <laughs> me neither. I've never won one either, but I argue with him. I, I began to question. I began to say, God, I, I was sure I heard your voice, but, but obviously I don't even think I can hear your voice because I was so confident. I, I, I don't think I can even hear you. It was just a really long, really difficult week of wrestling with God and arguing and, and uh, pity parties. Anybody ever have pity parties? Yeah. Well, the, that next Sunday... Uh, a lady in our church whom I held in very high regard, a great woman of God, she, she gave a prophetic utterance, a, a message to the church, a, a prophecy to the church in the service. And I don't, remember, I don't remember everything that she said in that message, but I do very distinctly remember exactly how that started. This is one of those rare moments where it's so burned in my memory that I can tell you exactly the words that started coming out of her mouth when she began to speak, when, and you knew it was God speaking. I don't know if you remember if, that she said, that this is what the Lord says, but I, you knew it was a prophetic utterance, and, and this is what she started off with. She started with these words, you have wrestled with me on this, and I have said no. And I was like, chills went down my spine. I was like, okay, I know a prophetic word is for everybody in the church, but if there's ever been one that's been aimed at me, that was it right there. And went on to say, basically, I will open the door at the right time. Just wait on the Lord. She had no idea anything that I was dealing with that week. So I heard that. 
And I repented before God. I, I just said, God, I'm so sorry. I, I misheard you. Uh, obviously, I misheard you, so I trust you. I, I know that you're going to open the right door at the right time. I will wait on you. Now, this, this is all happening around the beginning of September of 1987. Well, one month later, after my shift at that printing company, uh, I headed over to a friend's house where we were going to have a prayer meeting. A group of about four or five of us all worked the same shift. Uh, we worked the swing shift from about 3 to 11 in the, at night, and, and we had started... Uh, gathering together every night after we got off work at this at my friend's house, and we would just gather together and pray together before we'd go on home. And that was really, by the way, that was really the source of the healing that God brought into my life over those months. Well, anyway, I arrived at, at uh, the house of my friend John, and I was, I was the first to arrive other than John himself. And so while we were waiting for the others, we just began to talk about all the things that God had been doing in our lives that day, because every time we got together, God was moving in such powerful ways in our lives. Every time we got together, we would just had so many stories about what God did that day, and everybody was dealing different, with different situations, and we just began to share the two of us about what God had done in our lives. And, and he began to tell me some amazing things that God had done for him that day. And after he went through all of his stuff, he, he looked at me, he said, Dave, he said, that's not the best part. Now, it had been pretty good so far, so I was, I was really primed. I was like, man, I'm ready to hear the best part. He said, when I got home, there was a message on my answering machine from your mom. She said that the church in Dodge City had called and wanted to know if, I was still, if, if you're still interested in, and if you're still available. Well, as it turned out, I found out later, the only reason that they had filled a position with a volunteer from within the church was that they weren't sure if they could financially handle bringing on a youth pastor full-time. However, for, during the month of September, uh, they had the best month financially in the history of the church, and now, now they're ready to move forward. So th this is a month later, by the way. Well, immediately when I heard that, I just broke down in tears because all of a sudden I understood. I had heard from God. I did recognize his voice. I, it was the right door. But it was not the right time. See, there were, there were lessons about waiting on God that I had to learn. There were lessons about humility that I had to learn. There were lessons about submitting to authority that I had to learn. There were lessons about patience that I had to learn. I could only see what I wanted. I could only see the vision that, that God... But, but, but in the middle of that, God could see a church in Fredonia, Kansas, where I was going to meet my wife one day. God could see Pastor Ted Britton from Twin Falls, Idaho, where, where I would be mentored and trained and, and see what integrity feels ministry really looked like. And then while I was in Twin Falls, there were lessons about loyalty that I had to learn. There were lessons about priorities that I had to learn. There were lessons about the heart of God that I had to learn. There were lessons about leadership that I had to learn. There were lessons about integrity that I had to learn. And all along the way, at every place that God has taken me, there have been, there's been times of waiting on God and letting him teach me what he wants to teach me. And all along, God could see Restoration Life Church in Marion, Arkansas. And I really believe that if I had not listened to God, if I had gotten ahead of God, or if I had lagged behind God, that I wouldn't even be here today. As sure as I heard God say that he was going to send me to Dodge City, Kansas, I heard him say, stand still. Stand still. Stand still. Now, now I've said all that, not because my story is all that important, but because... I believe that this is a general theme 
in learning biblical obedience. If you want to be God's troublemaker in troubled times, listen to what God is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the full impact of the whole counsel of his word. Stay in the Bible. Pray and listen. And when God says, wait, wait. And when God says, okay, you want to walk on the water, step out on the boat, then to sit still is an affront to God. You know, I wish I had a better way to teach this. I, I don't know how to do it better, but I just know that it's just as real in the kingdom as, as the very pew that you're sitting on in this building. It's a spiritual principle. If you run ahead of God, you'll get hurt. And if you lag behind, you'll never be used as a torch in his hand. You know, I, I want to be God's troublemaker in these t- troubled times. Uh, you know, the next few years are going to be years in which we need some Elijahs and some Elishas and some maybe lesser-known prophets. We're, we're facing troubled times. I mean, watch the news. Do you watch the news? Look at what's going on in the world around us. I, I believe that if you do, if you watch the news with a heart tender toward God, you'll begin to, you will drop to your knees and you'll say, Oh, God, we need a revival. You, you'll say, man, we need, we need somebody from God. Well, you know, I at least want to be in on that, don't you? I'm not, I'm not taking anything on myself. I'm not Elijah. I'm not kidding myself. But I want to be in on that. The secret is to wait, listen, obey, learn. And when he says go, then act in the power of God. Let let me close with this. You know, in all my preparation, this was the thing that surprised me the most. And I hate to tell you, it's a horrible confession. I thought that that Elijah went up to heaven in a flaming chariot. He didn't. He didn't. That's not what it says. He went up in a whirlwind. The flaming chariot was there, but it was just kind of rambles through. Never says anything about him getting in there. It just says he went up in a whirlwind. And I said, what's this thing about? You know, you, you sing all these old gospel songs, swing down chariots, stop and let me ride. But he didn't get in a chariot. I love it. Some of you, I see you're opening your Bible like, wait a minute, I'm going to see this. You'll see. It never says anything about him being in the chariot. It just says there was a chariot there, you know. And that's a nice song, but, 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 but he didn't get in the chariot. So what part does the chariot play? You know, here it is. Now, now listen to this. Now we have to focus on a... On a we have to leave Elijah and focus on Elisha. Elisha says, before, the, before Elijah was taken, he says, I want a double portion of your anointing. I want a double portion of your anointing. And Elijah says, oh, okay, fine, fine, that's great. If you see me, if you watch me, if you can see me when, when I'm taking up, taken up into heaven, then the answer is yes. And then along comes this flaming chariot. I mean, horses on fire that just rumbles through the air. A- am I wrong or would your tendency to be to say, oh, wow, look at that flaming chariot. Isn't that right? You know, I mean, just naturally, if you're standing talking to a guy and an angelic chariot appears and you just see the chariot driver with a big whip going, pow, you know, and just whipping the fiery horses and the horses are made of fire and their eyes are on fire, you know, and there's this chariot on fire that just rumbles through the air. Wouldn't you just have a tendency to say, hey, look at that. Whoa. Wouldn't you? I would. 
But not Elisha. Elisha said, that's a distraction. I have my eyes on you. He says, I am not looking at that chariot. I am not looking at that chariot. I am not looking at that chariot. I'm watching you, Elijah. Because I want a double portion. You said I have to see you. Then a wind wind comes down. A wind cloud comes down and takes Elijah up on a whirlwind. Well, you can, it's all right if you disagree with me. I'm not the final authority, but could it be that the flaming chariot was a test to see whether he would be able to ignore the distraction? As wonderful and as exciting and as glamorous as it was, would would he bypass the first distraction and focus on the thing that God really had for him? Listen, know what you want from God. More than that, know what you need from God. Know what he's saying to you and stay focused. Stay focused on that. I, I just want to say this. You know, this is, this is not just for somebody that's going to follow Billy Graham or, or something like that. I, I, you know, I believe God is going to raise somebody up, some great evangelist, some great man of God who's, you know, some little insignificant Elisha who is focused, who knows the word of God to him, who has waited and prepared himself. And at the propitious moment of sovereign will, there will be all kinds of fireworks and distractions, but he will say, I'm not about any of that. This is what God has called me do to do it he'll stay right on it and he'll be God's troublemaker for those trouble these troubled times but you know what for all of us it's it's for all of us all of us in every kind of every walk of life don't get distracted that's the danger especially in America don't get distracted There's so many different things going on. There's so many different political ideologies. Let me tell you something. Salvation is not in the Democrats or the Republicans. There are all kinds of things to be distracted by. There's there's wealth in America. There's that new car, that new TV. There's relationships. There's these things that we want, that we think that we need. Don't get distracted. Don't let your eyes wander. Stay fixed on God. Keep your eyes focused on the thing that God has called you to be and and the thing that he has called you to do. And if he has said, wait, then don't listen to voices that say, run ahead. If he has said, get out of the boat, then don't listen to voices that say you got to stay in the safety of the boat. Do what God has called you to do. Stay on task. Stay on purpose. Do what he has said. Don't ever stop. Don't ever waver. Stay focused. And he will get you to the right place at the right time and fulfill his purpose in your life. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all want? I want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, that you called Elisha and Elijah, two very different men. And that means I don't have to be like great men of God who have come before me. I just have to be what you created me to be, what you've called me to be. And God, that you can use me. And and Lord, I just pray that as you've called every one of us, Because, God, you don't just call certain people to full-time ministry. You call all of us to full-time ministry. It's just that some of us have different vocations along the way. But, God, as you've called us, as you're speaking to us, there's some that you're saying you need to wait. 
There's still some things I want you to learn. There's still still some character I want to build. There's still some things that need to happen in your life. So wait, wait, wait. Don't run ahead. And, And they're chomping at the bit and they're ready to run ahead. But God, help us to wait. But then there are others, God, that you're saying, okay, this is it. This is now. Jump on it. Get out of the boat. This is your moment. This is your time. And God, we're hesitating because of fear or because of whatever else may be holding us back. But God, whatever you're saying to us. Help us to hear your voice so clearly, O oh God. Help us to hear your voice and to be obedient. And Lord, I pray that you would fulfill your call, fulfill your purpose, fulfill your will in us and through us. God, raise up Elisha's and Elijah's in this generation. Raise up people who will speak the truth of God, that those that are, that are enemies of, of, of God would, would begin to say, oh, they're, they're nothing but a troublemaker. But God, let us speak your truth in love. Raise up your church. Make us what you want us to be. Help us to wait when we need to wait. Help us to move when we need to move. And help us to be sensitive to your voice to know the difference. And I thank you for all that you've done and all you're going to do. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.